Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the subjective exploration of reality. With me is Dr. Bernardo Castrup, who is the author of Dreamed Up Reality, Diving into the Mind to Uncover the Astonishing Hidden Tale of Nature. His other titles include Rationalist Spirituality, an Exploration of the Meaning of Life and Existence Informed by Logic and Science. Meaning in Absurdity, What Bizarre Phenomena Can Tell Us About the Nature of Reality. Why Materialism is Baloney, How True Skeptics Know There Is No Death and Fathom Answers to Life, the Universe, and Everything. Brief Peaks Beyond, Critical Essays on Metaphysics, Neuroscience, Free Will, Skepticism, and Culture. More Than Allegory on Religious Myth, Truth, and Belief, and The Idea of the World, a Multidisciplinary Argument for the Mental Nature of Reality. This interview is being conducted via the internet as Bernardo is in the Netherlands, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Bernardo. It's a pleasure to be with you once again for our fourth discussion. And uh, today we're going to focus on your book, Dreamed Up Reality. And you, you begin with an interesting premise, which is that uh, conventional scientific thinking presupposes that the external world that we normally observe is is real that it's it's really out there it's objective independent of our perceptions of it and furthermore that our own uh, subjective uh, experience of the world is subject to all sorts of errors and illusions and is not very reliable and you, you begin by suggesting what if the opposite were true Yes, the, this is a philosophy, actually. It's not necessarily embedded in science as a clean method. It's a philosophical assumption. Uh, but it has come to be so tightly associated with science in the, in the culture these days, not only the popular culture, but the scientific culture itself, that it has almost become a synonym with science. What we are talking about here is physical realism, which has a, a technical definition. It's the idea that the physical world would continue to exist as more or less as we perceive it, at least in terms of its forms and quantifiable physical properties like mass, spin, charge, momentum, geometrical relationships, and so on. It would continue to exist even if no conscious enti entity were looking at it, were perceiving it, interacting with it in some way conscious. Um, that's the, the hypothesis of physical realism, which is a philosophy. Science could be done without this hypothesis. Science is the study uh, of the patterns and regularities of the behavior of nature as nature presents itself to us. It doesn't need to make the assumption of physical realism. But we do make that assumption. It has served a historical purpose. It has helped scientists and observers in general to be more so to say, objective about what they are observing. Uh, uh, and it has served the purpose over the last 200 years or so. Uh, but I think it has 
outlived uh, its usefulness. Now, the other assumption is that uh, perception, our experience of the world, is fundamentally unreliable. Um, and at the same time, it's all we have, right? So we try to find ways to increase the reliability uh, of our perceptions through peer confirmation or through uh, instrumentation, through measurement, uh, through talking and agreeing about what we are actually observing and repeating observations uh, to get a confirmation. This is all valid. This is all important, actually, because we shouldn't mistake uh, reality for a personal idiosyncratic vision or hallucination, or we should not replace uh, our uh, the fulfillment of our wishes for reality as it is. Reality is not always as we would like it to be. Um, but it goes too far. It's one thing to say that reality is not pliable to our egoic wishes and, you know, uh, 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 desires, hallucinations, and so on. It's another thing to say that its deepest level reality is fundamentally independent from its observer. And that's where I think things go too far, and I cast doubt on this uh, in the book. Most people, I think, uh, have a naive assumption that uh, what we experience out there it truly is real. Like the chair I'm sitting on, I'm pretty confident even after I leave the room, the chair will still remain in the room. I think we have good reasons to believe that there is something out there that we all share in some way, because our experience of the world is remarkably consistent across observers, right? I mean, if I were in the studio with you right now, I would look at your chair and confirm to you, yes, Jeff, you're sitting on a chair and it looks like this and that and so on. So there is something out there. Um, but to then go from this to saying that this chair, as we see it, with the qualities of our perception, exists in and of itself, in a definite state, occupying a definite position in space-time, with the properties that we measure. And it would still be there if nobody were interacting with it consciously. It's a very big leap. I mean, there are many optical illusions, for instance, so the, the checkerboard illusion, I was looking at it earlier today because I was reviewing a paper. Um, it's an amazing thing. You know, you have a checkerboard and there is an object, uh, a cylinder projecting a shadow on it, and you look at two squares and one looks black or very dark gray and the other one looks white or very light gray. And, and you know, if you check the RGB values of those pixels, that they are exactly the same shade of gray. And you know that. You can do the test uh, and you see that they are the exact sh same shade of gray. And yet you look at it and you see one is black and the other one is white. Uh, the, the, what our cognitive apparatus, and by this I mean not only uh, uh, our subliminal perception or how sense data is subliminally processed uh, uh, by our brain, but also our beliefs, our, our, our expectations, uh, what we bring to bear in our observation of reality is enormous. It has an enormous influence. Um, and most of us acknowledges this, well, at least people who study this, these things, they acknowledge it conceptually, but they don't really internalize how far this goes, how far the reality we think to perceive, the reality we, for all practical purposes, experience during our lives, how much of that is actually a function of what we bring to bear, uh, of what we bring to it. Um, people who, who, for instance, who suffer from clinical depression, uh, they will say, well, 
when I am depressed, the world itself seems to change. It becomes flatter. It becomes grayer. Uh, They they can't really explain exactly what it is. um, But they are very highly convinced that uh, the change is not only in themselves. They experience it as a change in everything outside. And here is an example of how our cognitive apparatus uh, highly influences the world we think we live in. Well, of course, the conventional viewpoint would be of the depressed person and so on is, is that emotions are capable of distorting our view of the world. And, and as an example of, uh, how, how subjectivity uh, clouds our perception rather than gives us a, a clear perception. But I think your interest in seeing if you can use subjectivity to explore the world is very consistent with William James' notion of radical empiricism, that our inner perception is the most direct experience we have of the world. Yes. Well, let me make a comment on this, because you're touching on, very early, you're touching on the key point, I think. The conventional explanation is, yes, that emotions will change our perceptions of the world. And we say that casually, as if, as if this didn't imply any great problem, any great mystery, as if this didn't, as if this wouldn't cast doubt on some of the fundaments of our view of the world. Why? Why do we seem to be able to reconcile this observation with our current view of reality? And the assumption there is that uh, when we are normal, when our cognitive apparatus is running normally, according to specs, whatever the specs are, whatever normality is, we think we, th- we see reality exactly as it is. And only when our cognitive apparatus is disturbed by something, oh, and then we deviate from truth, we deviate from reality. Say, if you take psychedelics and you put some, some chemical in your brain that works like a neurotransmitter, a neurotransmitter and elbows out the normal neurotransmitter in your synapses, and lo and behold, the world changes completely. Or you're depressed, there is some chemical imbalance in your brain, and then, well, now you're not seeing the world as it really is. Well, what is normality? Because, you see, even if we all uh, are operating under normal parameters, according to specs, neurotransmitters are drugs. Our perception of the world is completely drug-based. Take the drugs out and there would be none of it because it's all mediated by chemicals in our body, Um, our emotions. Uh, We always have them. Uh, What is a normal emotion? I would claim that uh, um, the average emotional response or the average emotional content of a person in the 21st century Western civilization is highly abnormal, is highly off the baseline, because the human race has existed for, what, 200,000 years? And we have had urban civilization with the stories we tell ourselves about the nature of reality for the last, yeah, hundreds of years now, Uh, not very long at all. how can we say that this is the normal? How can we say that this is the correct view of reality and that somebody on drugs or somebody depressed or somebody in some way with an altered state of consciousness to, to bring back the, the AFC, uh, an expression very familiar to you, uh, um, 
How are we to say that that is then not true? What is the truth? What is the baseline? We can't escape, abstract away from our own cognitive apparatus. We, we, we don't come with a user's manual that tell us what the uh, 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 operational parameters should be when they are in spec, right? So by the same token that we say, well, no, if your emotional state is you know, a bit out of the average, out of the ordinary, yeah, then reality is distorted. By the same token, by the same reasoning, we should ask ourselves what I perceive, what I believe, what I think to be happening when I am, quote, normal. Can I trust that? Because that is also mediated by a belief system, by a culture, by a certain emotional state that is considered functional in Western society, and by drugs, without which your brain wouldn't function. And That's I think the question. it's fair to assume, given all of the different cultures and, and the different worldviews of, of all of these cultures, there are hundreds of them on the planet at, at this moment with individuals who believe themselves to be experiencing normal, everyday, baseline reality. And yet they're all looking at reality quite differently, even especially, in fact, these days in, in our own very large country, you have two political parties and, and it's as if they are living on two planets. <laughs> yeah, that's probably one of the highest levels of reality distortion, right? It's the, the conceptual level, the, the cultural level. Um, it, it goes very deep. I think it goes, even this level, which is the more superficial one, I think it goes a lot deeper than most people dare to believe. I think most people who have never had a strong experience uh, of an altered state of consciousness in which um, how to say the clutter is sort, is sort of cleared out in which suddenly it, it, uh, the world is laid bare in front of you and you don't have the conceptual overlays anymore to organize that data according to a certain storyline, according to a certain belief system that helps you feel comfortable in face of that uh, abysmal mystery. Uh, people who have never had this experience, uh, I don't think they can imagine how much of the reality they live in is a cognitive construct of their own. Um, it, it's a cognitive construct that can be collective in the sense that we can share our beliefs through a cultural system, through education, um, uh, but a construct imposed on the world uh, by their way of perceiving and interacting with it. I think if people would really realize how much of what we think is out there, how much of what, think, what we think is going on is a construct of our own that we impose on reality, I think they would be shocked, mm -hmm. uh, to, to put it mildly. Will you uh, engage in a very interesting philosophical exploration of reality through the use of altered states of consciousness? And I think that's more or less the heart of your book, Dreamed Up Reality. So well, we should dive into uh, <laughs> that exploration. Yes, uh, there was a point in my life, it, it's been a relatively long time now, I'm, I'm 44, but it's been a... I'm not very old, but it's been a while. Um, I used to be, uh, what I had going for me is that I knew it. I used to be a, a very hard-headed person. I still have the tendency to be a very hard-headed person. Uh, not a fundamentalist, but somebody who would 
come up with a certain narrative that would make me comfortable, that would fit the data as far as I could see it, and adopt that narrative and and, and then just go with it. Um, well, you're a computer scientist by training. I, I am a computer scientist by training, um, computer engineer as well. Uh, engineers like to emphasize that they are also engineers because they do more than computer scientists. Uh, computer engineers build and design computers. They don't just program them. Um, that's my old self speaking now. Hmm. Um, so I had a very rationalistic background. I went to university. I had just turned 17. So some, from very early on, I received the you know typical high level you know Western education about you know logic, physics. Uh, when you're dealing with computers, computers have an amazing clarity of operation. Um, if you don't think clearly, you can't design or program a, comput a computer uh, because they make the errors in your thinking uh, blow back at you very quickly since they are so precise in how they operate. And that kind of rigor and precision, um, which is the nice way of putting it, uh, almost chauvinistic rationalism, which would be the more <laughs> correct way of putting it, uh, impregnated me. Uh, that's how not only I worked, but how I lived and how I looked upon the world. Uh, I remember um, many years ago, I received as a gift uh, a gift uh, book by Mikhail Bulgakov, uh, The Master and Margarita. It's one of the Russian classics. Um, and it's a sort of surrealist book. It's a, it's a social and cultural critique uh, that's made through a surrealist metaphor. And there is a point in the book, it's a normal story, and there's a point in the book in which uh, a cat takes a tram and goes and pays the ticket for the, uh, with the tram driver, a cat. When I read that, I sort of something short-circuited in my head, and I thought, I can't read this shit anymore. I can't read this. This is ridiculous. So that's how I was. This is so hard-headed. Uh, that, that I couldn't open up even to metaphor, let alone to, you know, broader definitions of logic and reality. And there was a point in my life in which I don't know what got into me. Um, and some, some opportunities came up, you know, I don't want to be specific about it, but things happen in your life and you get exposed to certain things, you have certain opportunities. And, uh, and I became curious about, uh, how much my own perspective, my own, my own cognitive apparatus was influencing what I thought was going on and how much, how limiting that could have been and what was there to be seen and experienced beyond that or behind that. So I did these experiments with altered state of consciousness and I went about it in a very, well, quote, scientific way, mm -hmm. uh, very systematic. I've studied a lot. I looked at the possibilities. I had help too. I was part of something that uh, gave me a, um, a foundation, a context. Uh, and I went very systematically about it and initially didn't have much in the way of results. But at some point, um, I was flabbergasted with what I was missing on for the first half of my life. Mm -hmm. And so the general principle of uh, these altered states 
and, and you're not really specific at all in the book as to how they were induced, and it probably uh, doesn't matter, although I have to suspect that uh, psychedelics or entheogens were involved. But in, in any case, uh, the point seems to be to let go of your normal ego state, your normal uh, notions of who you are, your sense of self, to see if you can somehow approach reality more directly, not filtered by any idea that you have about yourself. Yes. Uh, the gen- Well, let me tackle first the first point of, uh, of your question. Uh, there are many ways of inducing altered states. Psychedelics, uh, I live in the Netherlands, so, so they are available to me uh, legally. Um, uh, I even had medical uh, uh, consultancy <laughs> how to do this safely and properly, um, which for Americans is probably something beyond imagination, but uh, uh, here it was okay. Uh, I did checkups. I knew I was physically able to 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 to, to use psychedelics as far as my heart was concerned and psychologically able to uh, had, had enough psychological structure uh, to be able to integrate the experience afterwards. So it was all properly done. Mm-hmm. Um, but the general idea indeed is, is to dismantle the layers of overlay uh, that we erect between uh, our bare consciousness, the dative of experience, you know, not, not the ego, not the story of yourself that you tell yourself, not that construct, that character that we build in our minds and identify with, but the pure, bare dative of experience. That's to which experience is given, ipsity, so to say, um, uh, to, to, to dismantle these layers that we erect between this dative of experience, the, the, the naked self, um, and the world that is out there. Um, and uh, psychedelics are one way, but there, there are also mind machines, uh, there are breathing techniques, which for me were particularly effective. Breathing techniques can, can be quite powerful, quite amazing. Uh, combinations of these things tend to work uh, best, at, le- at least for me. I'm, I'm very hard-headed. It, it, for me, one thing alone probably wouldn't do the job. Um, uh, and the effect is, is precisely what we just talked about. It's, uh, these overlays uh, fall down. I mean, we tile the world around us with a sort of a, a conceptual cobweb. Uh, we don't see the world as it is. What we see uh, uh, is a conceptual framework that we tile it, tile it with. Uh, uh, this conceptual framework stands between us and, and reality. What we see is what we have been educated to see. Uh, we fit our sense data into predetermined categories that we inherit from education and culture. Uh, if you see a, a bird, uh, uh, the word bird comes to your mind and, and all the cultural baggage, the explanations about what a bird is uh, that you inherit, replace the actual experience of a feathered something flying around in the sky. But even if I say this, feather is already a category. The sky is already a category. To fly is already a category. Uh, we don't see the raw pixels uh, anymore. Uh, we see these this layers of cultural overlay. And when, when these layers fall down, you are exposed to an unfathomable uh, mystery with a degree of significance that is, frankly, 
way beyond my own uh, imagination. I mean, maybe artists wouldn't be as surprised as I was because they live closer to it. I, I was very, very far removed from it. My conceptual baggage was very heavy. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're, you're suggesting that language itself is like a, a prison that we live in. It's a tool, very important and useful tool. Uh, but as everything in nature, everything has a positive and a negative side. It is also a prison because language is the vehicle of this conceptual tiling uh, that, uh, that we incarcerate ourselves in. It's like a cocoon we build around ourselves. I mean, if you look at the... Uh, a two-year-old child uh, who's just learning language. Um, I don't have kids myself, but I have had the opportunity to observe a bit of it. Uh, that transition is phenomenal. Uh, the, 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 the shine in the eyes of a young kid, that curiosity, that raw interface with the world, with the simplest things like a colored pen or a cat. Well, a cat is pretty... <laughs> quite something for a kid uh, that, that, that sort of dissolves because the conceptual overlays start, you know, becoming the mediators between you and, and the reality that nature makes available to you. And, and the other problem, I suppose, is that if you enter into a, an exquisite altered state of consciousness, you're having all of these experiences. But if you don't have language, how are you going to be able to describe what you're experiencing? That's a key problem. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a key challenge I, I, I face. When, when I set out to write the book, I mean, these things had already happened when I set out to write the book. I had notes. Mm. I had copious notes. Uh, which when I first wrote, they were not meant to be in a book. It was not in, in my mind to write a book about it. Um, I was just trying to tell myself uh, what it was. And I used basically memory keys, uh, mnemonics, uh, to evoke the experience again in me. Uh, and, but since I was the one who had the experience, this could work. Uh, the problem is when you're trying to convey that to somebody who hasn't had the experience. And that becomes nearly impossible because the way language evolved is from shared experience. Well, I have to, to say this in, in reading your book. Now, I'm personally an individual, even though psychedelics have uh, rarely ever been legal in uh, our country and only under very specific circumstances. There has been a, a huge underground, and I suppose I was part of it. I had over a 100 psychedelic experiences in my earlier years, and I felt that by reading your very careful analytical description of these states, it reawakened memories of uh, previous altered states that, that I had experienced. So for that alone, I think the book is very valuable. Thank you. It works with you because you've had the experience, yeah. right? I, I was trying to also communicate to people who have never had experiences of psychedelics or meditation or mind machines. I know people who have had these experiences spontaneously. I know at least one case. Uh, and when he described what he experienced, I thought, yeah, that, that's it. You've been there. You know, I've been there, too. Uh, and this person had it spontaneously in a shopping mall mm. <laughs> of all places uh, to, to have an experience like this. Um, uh, that challenge was, was formidable. Um, what I also tried to do is even if you couldn't relate really to the experience, you could at least have a conceptual view of it. Mm. And, I, and then I would... 
in the second half of the book, I don't know whether you remember, I start talking about interpretation and ideas, what might be going on. I do that in a very loose way. Unlike my other books, I don't try to come up with a explanation. Uh, uh, I, I just let all ideas flow, possibilities. I play around with it. Uh, I, I wanted to to give a foundation to that second half of the book by at least giving some conceptual view of what the experiences are in the first half of the book so people could relate to the ideas in the second half of the book. Mm -hmm. So that I think I've achieved, uh, where I've managed to really evoke even a hint of what it is to experience the world, well, the world, it could be another world, uh, uh, to experience reality, whatever it entails, without the conceptual overlays, to even give a hint of that, would already be a formidable success, I think. Well, and you do. You manage to describe, I thought, very precisely and in a way that made it quite tangible for me, different layers of reality. For example, you distinguish between uh, egoistic uh, attachments that can lead to negative feelings from a, a sense of self uh, where the self is very much present but not uh, with ego attachment. Yes, uh, uh, self and ego are completely different things, right? Uh, um, uh, most people would, well, I don't know whether it's most people, but at least some people do not know how to make this difference. They don't have an intuition for the difference between self and ego. Uh, for them, it's, it's all one thing. It's one and the same thing. Uh, um, after these experiences, it becomes clear that they are not at all the same thing. They are not even on comparable levels. Uh, uh, the ego is an abstraction, is a story. Uh, the self is a whole different thing. You have always been the self and you have never been the ego. Um, there are many layers, I think, at least for me, in these experiences. One is um, your ego even may be preserved. Uh, but the, the, the conceptual overlays are removed and you see this world, this, this world without the conceptual overlays. That is the shallowest level, but that alone is already uh, an amazing thing, a life changing thing. At least for me, it was a, a life changing thing, a whole other world, a whole, but uh, another huge part of this world opened up for me that I didn't know existed, that I didn't know was there. Uh, and that was amazing. But you still have your ego and you still are in this world. There's another level, so to say, in which you are in reality, but it's not this world. And, and I'm not going to say more about it, otherwise I'll start sounding crazy. Uh, but it's very palpable. It's, it's not even a new experience. It's a remembrance. That's how, that's how you cognize, at least that's how I cognized it. This, uh, this idea of remembrance was very powerful in my experience. Like, the, the, that was not the first time I was witnessing that. That, that is my primordial experience. It's something I have always known. Somehow I just forgot. It's something absolutely timeless, has been a part of me for all eternity. Um, and you come back in contact with that and then you have that, oh, of course, I remember now. Um, so it's another world. But you, you're still yourself. And the deeper, deepest layers are when talking about a world doesn't even hold much meaning anymore. Uh, the ego vanishes. Uh, you're no longer the ego. Uh, you are the pure dative of experience. And, and the experience is kind of empty. 
Buddhists, I think, call it the great void. I, I'm not sure they are talking about the same thing, but I strongly suspect they are, because even if I didn't know about that expression from Buddhism, the great void, I would be tempted to independently use the same words uh, for that. Uh, it's a void. Uh, it's a very, very pregnant uh, void. It's a very, very rich emptiness. Yeah. Um, we fall I'd, into paradoxes and contradictions. It's unavoidable. I'd like to come back, uh, though, to your description of uh, entering into a state of reality that you remembered. Like, this is something you had always known. It's extremely familiar. But when you're in your normal state of consciousness, you have no awareness of it. That's the most disconcerting aspect uh, of these experiences. Uh, I, I, for me, this was the most, I, I had not expected it at all, because I came to this with the intent of exploration. I, I pictured myself some kind of Columbus, you know, on a voyage of discovery. <laughs> it's, it's so naive. Um, yeah, I, I, I figured that... Um, I would come into the experience as an explorer who can take notes, that the experience would be sort of outside of me, independent from me, and I could maintain objectivity and make mental notes, come back and describe it and, and tell the folks what it's all about. Uh, that was my naive 20-something self when I, when I came to this, very systematically, but with these naive, unexamined assumptions that didn't even occur to me to question. And when you go into the experience, uh, that you realize that uh, this idea of objective observation, of separation between you and the experience and taking mental notes, it, it's laughable. It's absolutely ridiculous. You, uh, the self is, is fundamentally intertwined with reality. Reality is an expression, uh, paradoxical as it may sound, it's an expression of the self, a highly paradoxical manifestation of the self to the self, and any semblance of, of objectivity falls off along, along the first meters on that road. Um, so you are it. And why am I saying that? Because I think this idea that you are the experience has something to do with the sense of familiarity that is so forceful, uh, so unavoidable uh, in that experience that you're, you're not really seeing new lands here. You're not discovering a new country. Uh, you're going back, if anything. Uh, you're going back to, to the origins. You're going back to where you came from to begin with, to, to, to the fountainhead of it all, to the fountainhead of the story of life, the universe, and everything. And you were there. Uh, you just forgot. Uh, and although you don't have the conceptual apparatus to give words to it other than to say it's very familiar which doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the feeling uh, it is very familiar even though you can't bring words to it yeah. well i do think you were you managed to take excellent notes and and to report <laughs> on it uh even if it seemed absurd you did a, you, you really to my thinking you did a superb job of describing your uh exploration in fact i would call it exemplary i th i think it's a a great model for other people psychonauts of the future who <laughs> who want to pursue this kind of experimentation to notice how carefully you you uh, recorded your experiences one of the fast one of the fascinating things that you describe, you call it, I believe, the theater of the mind. 
And, yeah, the uh, inner theater. The inner theater. That that was very interesting. It reminded me of Herman Hesse's uh, magic theater. I am not familiar with that. Shame on me. <laughs> uh, but uh, since this is being recorded, I will look it up. Okay. Um, yeah, inner theater. What to say about that? Um, I mean, we we talk about the theater as if it were a place, right? It's a metaphor, of course. It's it's not a physical place. It's a place in the mind. It's a a state, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, that I think you you speculate at one point that it might be a physical place. Because what is a physical place? Here, this place. Mm. Uh, bear with me. What I'm trying to say here is not to deny that uh, the inner theater is a place. Why I'm saying it's a state is because it sounds much more plausible when you're having an altered state of consciousness while lying in your bed uh, that whatever it is that you visited cannot be really a place, right? You're lying in your bed with your eyes closed. Uh, so it's a state of mind that looks like a place. But what is this? What is this place I'm in right now? My office uh, at home. What, is, what, what does it mean to say that there is a physical place? What there is is an experience, and that experience is in mind. So maybe what we call places in general are themselves a state of mind. Uh, and if they are so, then it's perfectly valid to say that the inner theater is a place, just as much as my home office is a place, because they're both states of mind. That, that, so that's, that's the logical loop that I was uh, trying to um, to tie in here. Uh, characterizing it as a place is the best metaphor, as it is to characterize this office as a place. Everybody sort of can relate to that, because that's, that's the feel, that's the ethos of the experience, the gestalt of the experience. You, you are in a place in the sense that there is an environment uh, with certain boundary conditions and circumstances that differentiate it from other environments, from other states. So we call it a place. It may even look and feel like a place uh, in certain altered states of consciousness. Um, but it's, a, it's an inner theater because it is as if your own cognitive processes were laid bare to your metacognitive appreciation. It's as if you could take a microscope to your own minds, to the hidden layers of your cognitive processing, and look step by step at what happens uh, uh, before the world you call your reality is presented to your ordinary awareness. All those, all of those constructivist steps in which maybe sense data, but certainly elemental thought patterns are, are woven together according to a certain inner logic uh, to arrive at a presentation that you consider coherent, acceptable, consistent with your past, and, and productive as far as your future is concerned, which, which is what we call the ordinary reality. Mm-hmm. Well, this it's, reality is, is paradoxical because you are both the audience of the inner theater and the playwright. Yes, it's a mind sort of splits in two and it can investigate its, the, the depths of, of itself. Uh, and, 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 and that is amazing. I think that is the greatest mystery. I mean, you could go to another planet in another star system that truly would be very amazing, uh, or to one of the moons of Jupiter and, and that would surely be amazing. 
but nothing compared to being able to take a microscope to your own cognitive processes because your own cognitive processes are what define your reality, our, our own narrative about what's going on across the universe, even in other solar systems, even in the moons of Jupiter, what we tell ourselves about that is itself a result of our cognitive processes at work. When you take a microscope to that, it changes not only your view of yourself, but your view of everything that's going on across the universe. Mm-hmm. And that is prof- yeah. profound. And yeah, I, I got the impression as you described uh, these experiences that in order to get more directly at the nature of reality, you had to go through these levels first. You, you had to be able to look at your cognitive process and, and before you could kind of let go of it and then go deeper. That's how the thing presented itself to me, the thing or me, <laughs> what, what is the thing but me, presented itself to me through this layered thing. It, uh, what I was curious about it is that uh, it's a metaphor, and I don't claim this to be the literal reality of it, but it felt like a structured curriculum, <laughs> so to say, uh, which is very peculiar, or strange. Um, first time you go in there, certain things are presented to you that you, or you present yourself, whatever. I, I'll keep using the second person metaphor. Th- certain things are presented to you um, at a level that you can barely make sense of, but you can get some grip on it. You don't go completely bananas. You don't say, oh, this makes absolutely no sense. I'm out of here. You, you can take a bite of it uh, and chew on it. And then you go back in and, oh, now it goes deeper. Now what you thought you had understood, oh, that's not quite the story. There is a deeper level to this, you know. And then, oh, okay, oh, now, and then take another bite at that. And, you, know, you can hardly digest it, but, you know, you, you, you don't get sick. You, you do digest it. It takes a while. It's painful, but you do digest it. And then you go back in and you go, oh, actually, that was not the whole story yet. There is another layer. And that's how the thing presented itself to me, which only exacerbated the the amazement of that series of experiences. So many different traditions refer to the self as like an onion with perhaps an infinite number of layers. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it definitely felt like a layered yeah. uh, thing. Why it was presented in that layered approach, maybe that's what I could digest. Mm-hmm. Uh, my own it, mind yeah. knew how to present itself to itself. And then yeah. there there was the various issues you had about coming back to reality. As I recall, the first time you experienced this glorious reality and then coming back to normal reality was something of a bummer. But the second time, it was almost reversed. Uh, the bummer is the more memorable experience. From It's almost, yeah, I call it re-entry. Hmm. Um, the the experience of freedom, of being unburdened, of not being limited by space-time location. Time, time, time is an incredibly oppressive thing. Um, we, we don't realize it until we are momentarily out of it. Um, space is a very highly oppressive thing, location in space. Um, I mean, it it would sound so abstract for for most of your audience, I think. It would sound like, what is it talking about? This guy's crazy. Um, 
I, I suspect not. I suspect uh, uh, our viewing audience is very likely, if they've stayed with us this far, they're <laughs> going to follow you all the way. Okay. When you're out of this oppressive jacket of space-time and identity, and you are free to rove in yeah, timelessness, spacelessness, uh, identity-free, to return to this, to remember um, how you got to where you were and therefore where you're going back to, that you're going back to a week divided in seven days, uh, that you're going back to a metal box with a wheel that you move around to get from A to B. I mean, a car. Um, uh, to go back to a story of self. I'm a certain person with certain characteristics, and there is a whole infinite number of things that I am not. To go back to this, when you are in that state, is like being smashed by, I don't know the word in English, uh, you know, when you lay new asphalt and they bring that, that big heavy thing it squeezes the asphalt and levels yep. the asphalt. Uh, what's it called? A roller? Steamroller. No, a steamroller. <laughs> it's like it's like being under a steamroller. Yeah. Uh, it is so incredibly oppressive. Uh, if you have any means on that moment to abort the reentry and not come back to this, you would you would do anything not to come back to this. Uh, and it, First time it happened to me, it took me 48 hours to recover some semblance of equilibrium um, to be able to become functional again. Because the first few hours, I was just flattening bed and I was like, I, I don't want this. I just don't want this. Yeah, I'll stop here. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> this but, human oh, existence. See, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, ego dissolution for me, it's difficult for anyone. Uh, but I was prepared. I, I had been trained for, for, for letting go. If you let go during ego dissolution, don't try to hold on to identity, which is much easier said than done. Once you're really confronted to the dissolution of identity, you, you, every fiber in your body tries to hold on to it because you think you're going to die, you're going to disappear. Uh, but for me, that was not too bad because I was so well prepared for it. It was so hammered uh, in me that that was the big challenge that I had to be prepared for. And that went relatively smoothly, you know, guarded, you know, the, the, the circumstances. What I was not prepared for, and nobody prepared me for, was coming back. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where I got smashed. Yeah. But then as I recall, the next time, it, it was the opposite. You longed to come back. There was an experience which was a, a beautiful lightweight experience it's almost like uh, i got a school break in the curriculum uh, because things were getting tougher and tougher and tougher and at some point i thought I'm, i can't do this anymore um and when i had that doubt going into an experience with that doubt and that fear like what is coming now you know can i take this can i integrate this afterwards um and then it's like the thing responded and 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 gave me a, a beautifully relaxing and joyable experience 
uh, in this world, uh, not with the cognitive barriers that lie between myself and the world, without those barriers, but this world, this world of ours right here, the, the, the pulsating rhythm behind this world, the feeling of how nurturing this world is to, to ourselves in a certain, at a certain level, and how, how profoundly integrated with it uh, we are, how, how much we are part of it, and it is part of us. Um, and that nurturing feeling was very positive. So much so that at some point in the experience, I was looking forward to just being in this world really again as a, as a functioning human being with two arms, two legs and a brain uh, that could go out to nature and interact and just be in the world. Uh, a very Heideggerian concept, right? Mm -hmm. Being in the world. That's what I was looking forward to. And that reentry was very, very enjoyable. Mm -hmm. uh, and it came at a point in that process, it, it came at exactly the right time. That was exactly what I needed. And, and that's the thing about these experiences. They tend to be exactly what you need, not what you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you described, as I recall, the, the inner theater at that time seemed like a very lonely place because it was just you and your thoughts. And, uh, whereas the real world is a place of, of people. You can interact. You can, you know, have a community. <laughs> Oh, now I remember which experience you were talking to. Yeah. I was referring to another to ah. another one of the experiences. Yes, this too. Uh, this was a different experience. Uh, it was an experience of loneliness. Uh, it was very evocative of, you know, Greek philosophy in a sense, you know, the aeon playing with balls, you know, all that, those metaphors of yeah. the old Greeks. And they returned to that experience. I was in the inner theater of mind, so to say, where your cognitive processes build the world you think you inhabit, you think you live in. Um, but there was only me there. And you, you get very confronted with it, with this idea that uh, you are all that's going on in there. Uh, everything you see, everything you experience, all that gestalt of experience that transcends perception, uh, but it's very rich. It, it's all aspects of you unfolding to yourself. And there was a very palpable feeling of loneliness uh, in that experience. And coming back to this, this state of mind in which the world seems to be completely dissociated from us and we truly inhabit it and the world is different, it's separate from us. It's a, it's a terrain to be explored as as a, a, a second person or a third person um, that was very appealing because it uh, it uh, it uh, resolved that that feeling of loneliness which can can be quite quite tough to bear in, in fact as i recall you came up with a very interesting insight about the nature of creation itself uh, an answer to the question i suppose of why is there something instead of nothing yeah, that's the second part of the book in which I begin to speculate freely. Let me just make this observation. This book is different from, from the rest of my books, from yeah. the other six books, in that uh, I did not try to be strict, rigorous, uh, or to, to, to come up with a definite explanation or a definite model. I didn't try to model the experience. Uh, in the second part, I'm, I'm just freely postulating hypotheses, and I'm not married to any one of those hypotheses, although 
a few of them I really believe in, but I, I ain't going to say which ones. Uh, it was an exercise in just poetic philosophy, so to say, uh, if, I, if I could put it this way. Um, and an idea that I had, and I just put in the book for what it's worth and not really trying to defend it as a fact, but it's just an idea that came to me, is that uh, if there is really only one mind beha behind all reality, as my own philosophy would say, and the philosophy of many others uh, would, would argue, uh, I can very well resonate or empathize with the profound feeling of loneliness that that would imply. Uh, and, and I can empathize as well, I can imagine, I can almost feel uh, what motivation that would constitute for creating a a type of experience in which there is something else, in which there are other things that you don't really believe to be you, uh, because that would address that profound feeling of solitude. You'd basically cheat yourself into thinking that aspects of yourself are actually something else, and you'd feel good about it because you'd have a partner, you have friends, and you know all this 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 whole theater going on around uh, that you think is not you and that you're just exploring. Very appealing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the most striking experience that you reported to move on is when you encountered uh, almost a geometric, mathematical, hyperspace object uh, that struck you as emblematic of uh, the deepest nature of reality. That was the most mind-blowing experience I've had. Um, when I went into that, I, in, in many of the experiences, I didn't try to set the tone. I just went in and said, okay, let's see what's happening. Uh, in a few others, I, I sort of asked the question, uh, uh, not in the sense that I was thinking that I would be talking to somebody else, but in the sense of trying to set the tone of the experience. Um, by asking a question, setting an intent, so to say, trying to steer the way things would go in a certain direction. Mm. And uh, I am, that's my character, I am I'm driven by uh, a need, a need is too much, but I'm by a very, very strong desire to understand what's going on. To understand this, what, what is this? What am I? What are you? What is this world we live in? What is life? This strange thing, it starts and then ends. Uh, what is this about? Uh, I'm very driven by trying to figure this out, uh, hopeless as it may be. Um, so the tone I set uh, for that experience was uh, to try to derive an answer, to have an insight along those directions uh, that would feel fulfilling to me. And what I got was way beyond what I had bargained for, um, because at some point in the experience, um, I don't want to use the word revelation because it has such a religious association with it. It's also very difficult not to use the word, uh, but fine, I would use the word. It's, uh, it's as uh, if something was revealed to you. Yes. Yes, uh, a revelation, not necessarily, well, maybe even in the religious sense, because a revelation about the nature of reality, what could you call it if not religious? Uh, 
I'm careful, I'm struggling with using this word, but yeah, fine, that, that's what it was. Uh, and it reviewed itself in a geometric way, uh, perhaps because my mind is susceptible to it, uh, my background, my education, it reviewed itself as a, a self-generating fractal pattern. Uh, I mean, when I say this word, it's like, oh, gosh, it was not that at all. <laughs> what am I talking about? It was much more than that. But I don't, I don't have better words. And th these are the words I use in the book as well. A, a self-generating fractal that mm -hmm. begins from a singularity. And, and given certain simple rules, magical but simple, it generates infinite complexity out of nothing. Uh, and it unfolds um, infinitely. It, it, it always generates novelty out of nothing based on some simple, quote, geometric relationships and rules uh, in, in a fractal manner, in the sense that the thing is self-similar across levels, in the same way that the piece of the leaf of, of a fern is very similar to the entire leaf of the fern. You know, that, that's the concept of a fractal, and, and that's how it felt. But when I say this, I don't begin to convey the, the cognitive impact of that thing, uh, because the, the insights it conveyed go much beyond what I just said. It, 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 these are insights you can't put it in words, but it provided a, a very compelling, quote, explanation, insofar I can use the word explanation for something that doesn't fit into language, an explanation for, for this, for how this came to be, mm -hmm. for how the world came to be, for how, for how you and I came to be, not only how, but why, and, and, and what does it do, and where it's, where it's going to, not in the sense of a premeditated plan, but in the sense that it, it has a preferential direction, it has a, a disposition. And, uh, and it was not only satisfying to me, now, think about this, you get an answer about why the entire universe exists that is satisfying to you. Wow, that's quite an answer. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was not only satisfying, it was as if it was going to make me burst, as if I, I, I couldn't accommodate that download. Um, I couldn't hold it within the boundaries of my being, if you know what I mean. Um, at some point, I was very, very interested in aborting uh, the experience because I thought, <laughs> I can't take this. Uh, it's enough. Yeah. Memory is full. <laughs> I cannot process this. But you didn't abort. Uh, I didn't have any control. Uh, it was a scary experience because usually you have some degree of control. Mm. Um, that one I completely lost control. I was in the hands of whatever was going on. Ultimately, I was in the hands of myself, mm -hmm. <laughs> not of my ego. Um, but it felt as, as if uh, I was completely out of control. It was doing what it was going to do, and I was just there to witness, and you know, whatever was going to happen was going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, I survived, right? Yeah. <laughs> that much we know. But in effect, it, it strikes me as being very Pythagorean or Platonic in the, in the sense that it seemed as if you were looking at the geometrical, mathematical, hyperspatial basis of, of reality itself, the very pattern that, uh, from which reality emerged. Yes, but those hyperspatial patterns were not only geometry. 
they presented themselves in the form of geometry, but they were also feeling. They were also emotion. They were also identity. They were also telos. It's very hard to, to, to put this in words. They were other and they were me. Um, <laughs> they were spatial, but they weren't. They were temporal, but they weren't. They were also eternal. Um, you can't really bring language to bear on that because language didn't didn't evolve for this. Language evolved for utilitarian purposes. Where is the tree that has fruit? Uh, what part of the river has a crocodile that's going to kill you? That's what we evolved the language for, not for deep inner experiences that we don't really share. Yeah. Well, uh, I have to say, though, you know, philosophers have been endeavoring to describe these experiences for a couple thousand years. So language has had to uh, accommodate the needs of philosophy. And uh, it strikes me that what what you have done with these, I mean, you only report on four experiences, uh, what you have done with them is is to I would call it a viable uh, demonstration that it is possible to begin to apprehend reality directly and at some level uh, through subjective means. I think the only way we could really construct a language that would minimally capture this is if a a critical mass of people in a civilization in a culture would have those experiences themselves, because then we would have common references around which we could build a shared dictionary. Right now, we are just grasping at straws here. Uh, we, we are pointing to a direction, trying to explain to a blind man where he should go by pointing. Yeah. Uh, it's not, not going to happen. Uh, I, I think the main goal I had with the book was not necessarily to try to achieve what I just said, because I don't think it's viable uh, on short term. Um, but to try to put culture in perspective, uh, even if people don't share those experiences right now, I think it's important that at least some of us uh, uh, sound, not the alarm, it's not really an alarm, but, but try to point out that what we take for granted is not really reality as it is. It's a construct. It's a cognitive construct. And we don't really have an intuitive grasp of how much we think is really out there is actually a construct. And it's important that from time to time people say, no, wait a moment, Uh, what you bring to bear to reality goes much deeper than you would dare imagine, Mm -hmm. at least so we can put things in perspective. Well, you know, one of my... uh professors when I was a graduate student at uh, at Berkeley was Charlie Tart. And back in 1972, he published an article in Science called uh, State-Specific Research. And it was a program where where communities of people would engage in the sort of exploration that you've done and and form a community uh, uh, for purposes of uh, the many benefits that come from consensus uh, approaches to these kinds of phenomena. Uh, it strikes me that uh, even though 50 years later, I've just talked to Charlie about it, he says it hasn't happened yet, uh, state-specific research, but you've made an important step in that direction. Uh, I think. Look, I think I, I have um, conflicting feelings about this. Hmm. Um, because the experiences I have undergone have been enormously valuable for me. I, I, 
I, I cannot overestimate how valuable they have been to me. They've opened cognitive vistas, insights, understandings uh, uh, that, that I, I wouldn't even be able to imagine, even to conceptualize, even to conceive uh, before. So restricted was my world. So restricted was my, my reality in, compare, in comparison to what it is today. Um, so from that perspective, I wish everybody would have these experiences. At the same time, because I have undergone them, them, I've seen the potential pitfalls as well. And I've almost fallen in a few. And I have seen people fall in, in the pitfalls. Uh, when we come back and the ego reasserts itself, we go into interpretation mode. And, and even if you've had uh, a very compelling, very profound experience, two weeks later, that experience is a hostage of the narratives you tell yourself about it. And you can distort it, you can misremember it, uh, you can dismiss it, uh, you can make heads and tails of it. Um, it's very important to remain honest to yourself. And it's also very, very difficult to remain honest to yourself. At least it's been difficult for me to remain honest to myself. It's a next, it's a constant exercise in discipline. Because when you come back, you want to fit it into a narrative that, that this acquiescent to your inner needs, even the needs that you're not aware of. Mm. They need to be cynical. They need to be skeptic. They need to be uh, flaky. Uh, they need to be a dreamer. They need to think that there are aliens from the Pleiades that are governing human destiny. I mean, you, you know, you, you got a hint now of where I'm going with this. Mm. Um, so I'm not naive about, if this is naivete, uh, about this ideal of uh, getting everybody to have an experience of an altered state of consciousness, because I don't think this, this was going, this is going to save the world. Um, I think it's very difficult to do it right. Uh, not only for whoever is coordinating this, but especially for the people who are undergoing and uh, the experiences. For all I know, it could make things worse. Um, the, the, the human psyche uh, is it, a dangerous beast. It's, uh, it, 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 it should be handled with a lot of care. Mm. Uh, and when you set it loose, things can go much better and they can go much worse. So uh, I, I have mixed feelings about this, to be mm. honest with you. Well, one of the insights that you report that you had while you were engaged in, in this altered state of consciousness is that reality, as, as we know it, is the product of... Uh, the deep mental structure of the universe. And then when you came back, you began to doubt that insight. Yes. Uh, it's my, it, it, it was a time in my life when I was trying to reconcile solipsism and idealism. Solipsism is the idea that, uh, wow, it, it's, all your, it's all your cognitive projection. You, Jeff, are not really real. There is nothing it's like to be you. You aren't really conscious. You are just a phantasm that I project in the screen of my imagination. And that's all there is. It's my personal imagination. That's solipsism. Uh, if you say that uh, after an altered state of consciousness, that your entire world is a cognitive construct of your personal mind, then you're a solipsist, which is something that I, I it's, it's anathema for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I even have an analytic argument to counter solipsism, but I will confess to my emotional bias. I cannot live with solipsism. I, I, I cannot accept it. So it's Bertrand Russell who said, even those who, who allege to believe in solipsism behave 
as if solipsism weren't true and they can't help it. That was Bertrand Russell's <laughs> argument against solipsism, <laughs> uh, that you can't behave consistently with it. Otherwise, why would I, why would I even be talking to you right now? You don't really exist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and idealism, which is the idea that always oh, mental, but not on, not only my personal mentation, that there is mentation at large, there is a transpersonal mind that underlies our collective experience of reality. So when I wrote this book, I was emphasizing more, more what we bring to bear in constructing the reality we experience, we as individuals. Uh, and I was not addressing whatever underlying transpersonal mind there may be that sort of harmonizes our respective experiences of the world that we construct ourselves, but which are mutually consistent. So there seems to be something out there that we we all share, even though reality as it presents itself to us is a cognitive construct of ourselves. Um, so that's the struggle I was uh, uh, trying to to deal with um, around the time I was thinking about this book. But the time I wrote the book, I had some clarity uh, mm-hmm. about it. But returning to the cultural narrative, uh, you know, having an, an altered state of consciousness and the experiences that come with it doesn't make you immune uh, to the cultural narrative. The cultural narrative is extremely seductive. Uh, it's an adaptive thing for human beings to bind to the cultural narrative because that's how we can cooperate and dominate dominate nature as if we weren't parts of nature. But uh, you know what I mean? Well, uh, well, the culture itself is typically where people get their food. Most people go to the supermarket. They don't go out to the field. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's Western Civilization uh, 101. Uh, but, but it goes even deeper than that. It's... it's it, uh, if you don't have a narrative that brings meaning to your life, um, as a metacognitive human being, life becomes unbearable. For, for my cat, they don't need a narrative because they are in the present. They are not running narratives. Uh, they are facing the immediacy of experience, the immediacy of reality that's sufficient for them. But we are, uh, as Paul Tillich said, Viktor Frankl, we are meaning-seeking animals. Yeah. Uh, the will to meaning it's much stronger than, than the will to life of Schopenhauer, the will to power of Nietzsche, or the will to pleasure of Freud, right? The will to meaning is the, the basic drive of, of self-reflective uh, uh, thinking human beings. So you need a narrative even to be able to wake up in the morning and see sense in putting one foot in front of the other and going about our, your day. And the culture is what provides you that. Um, so the culture is your lifeline because it's what provides you a framework for meaning. We don't trust our own sense of meaning. We need authority figures. We need the power of consensus. We need you know, what the newscaster is telling you at night because that's not restricted to the little me that knows nothing. Oh, there are some authorities and there is some critical mass in the culture at large that are telling you what's going on and you derive your meaning from that. So you have an altered state uh, of consciousness experience in which, oh, those overlays dissolve and you have a direct acquaintance with reality as mysterious and familiar concurrently as it may be. Uh, And that's fantastic. But then you come back and the need to find meaning reasserts itself very, very powerfully, very, very strongly, and you become vulnerable again to the cultural narrative, and it's difficult to deal with it. 
you, as I recall, sort of debated with yourself, which, which should be stronger, the cultural narrative or the sense that you had in this altered state that you were experiencing reality directly, unmediated by narratives? It's a struggle I continue to have. And I'll tell you, since then, I've not since I wrote the book, but since I had that struggle, uh, I've found some degree of peace, which sort of colors most of my work. I'll tell you how I managed to reconcile that for myself to my own satisfaction. I don't know whether for others this would be sufficient. Um, One thing is to have a degree of confidence about what the ontic nature of reality is, what is the essence of reality. I think we can have a quite high degree of confidence for reasons that I expound in the body of my work, that reality is essentially mental. It's a thing of consciousness. Reality are patterns of excitation of consciousness. And of course, we have to explain why we have a shared world, why the Mm-hmm. My brain states are, so, correlate so well with experience. Yes, yes, yes. I have to talk about that. We know that. Okay, that's why we wrote six books about it. Um, but I think we can have a high degree of confidence in that one statement that requires a set of books to be made sense of. But notice that it says very little. To say that reality is mental is hardly a starting point. Uh, We just find ourselves in a cultural situation in which what is hardly a starting point is a major insight for our culture (laughs) because we are so screwed up that what should be the obvious starting point is now so far out of reach for us. Mm -hmm. It has become so implausible. Picture that. It has become implausible for our culture that the essence of reality is mental. I mean, a hundred years from now, People will look back to us and they will think, these guys were crazy. What were they <laughs> thinking? <laughs> but but ju- just to conclude, Jeff, it, it takes books and books and books to make an argument for what is, in fact, just a starting point that says nothing. Okay, reality is mental. And now what? What is unfolding in that universal mind? What is it about? What are the layers? What are the patterns? What is the telos? What is it trying to do? Is it trying to do anything? Why are we alive? Is there any meaning in being alive? If yes, how should we live? What can we expect? I mean, wow, the journey hardly begun when you say that reality is mental. And I think the danger is in taking an experience of an altered state of consciousness and passing judgment about these other things, passing judgment about, well, what we're trying to do is some kind of self-discovery, and there are these teachers from the Pleiades that are guiding us, oh, that, that, there it begins. And then you have a million different ideas and narratives about what, you know, what the stars are doing up in the sky, and do they serve a purpose, what are black holes, uh, now, does personal identity survive, physical death or not, are there other realms? So you can write gazillions of libraries the size of human culture today about all these possibilities and I think there is very little reliability about these kind of stories if you take them as as some kind of noses 
out of a transcendent experience from an altered state of consciousness. The trickster is loose in an altered state of consciousness. Mind will tell itself stories that it can become very convinced of, uh, but they are symbolic stories. There is nothing literal about them. So, finally answer your question, the way I reconciled it to myself is to say, I'm going to stick with the one thing that I think we can be very confident of. Whatever really is going on, whatever the the game is that we are playing, I don't know, but I know this, it's mental. That is uh, sort of the beginning and the end of <laughs> <laughs> the alpha and omega of, of your philosophy uh, right there. And of course, there's, there's much more to say, and uh, I'm sure it may take centuries to unfold, but I suspect what, what we're facing still is a scientific problem. Uh, and that is given that it is mental and given that uh, mental reality is is subject to uh, contamination uh, from the trickster within each of us, uh, or, or that is our ability to understand mental reality is subject to contamination, not mental reality itself. Uh, Given, given that, uh, which you've been very articulate about, how can we then begin to develop refined methods of inquiry? I, I'm going to make you happy now. <laughs> I think the most fundamental science, the mother of all knowledge, the, the foundation of all modes of inquiry is psychology, not physics. Um, so I think a relatively deep level of self-understanding from a psychological perspective of the kind that people get after years of therapy and self-inquiry and self-analysis um, is a critical ability um, to go into those gestalts of mind. Uh, otherwise, we are so vulnerable, so uh, we fall so easily prey to self-deception. Mm. Uh, the mind is very creative and it will not hesitate uh, in cheating itself. Um, we, we don't even really have metacognitive access to, to what really motivates us. I mean, anybody who has undergone years of therapy will know this, that we are driven by forces within us that we are not metacognizant of. We don't know really what is driving us, uh, where that energy comes from for us to either be successful or undermine ourselves completely. Um, the, the, the ability to be able to be critical about the processes of our own mind, to constantly ask ourselves, can I trust what I'm concluding about myself right now? I think that is the key tool. Um, I am certainly not capable of full metacognitive self-criticism. And the more I succeed in peeling the next layer of the onion and realizing yet another creative way in which I'm cheating myself, the more I do that, the more I realize how prone to it I am. And, and, and the less I trust myself. Um, I don't want to sound negative, but I think it, we are nowhere near developing a, a methodology that would allow us to have some degree of confidence about particular contents of mind, because even the methodology is a product of mind that you have to be skeptical about. Mm. Know what I mean? Uh, I've come 
at this point in my life, I may change my mind at some point, but I, I've come to the conclusion that there is only one thing that I can really be confident about, and that is whatever is going on, it is mental. It is mind playing on itself, with itself. Um, there is another book that we already, another book of mine that we already talked about, um, more than allegory, and I, I talk about the, what do I call it, the magician. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that um, you know even skepticism can be used against a skeptic because there is the, the strict mind plays on itself that it, it's skeptical about what it's thinking and then it realizes oh I'm thinking that but I'm skeptical about myself oh I, now I know how I deceived myself I realized what I, what I, what mistake I made how I am deceiving myself so that's all wrong and then you fall back onto another story yeah. that you think is a safe harbor because your skepticism eroded what you were thinking so you fell, fell back into some solid ground of skepticism in fact that solid ground that is the trick <laughs> that is the way you're deceiving yourself and then our mind has used its own skepticism to deceive itself i will go as far here maybe i'm going out on a limb because i never said that i think if it's not the nature of mind to deceive itself, it is a very prominent disposition of mind to deceive itself. And it will find unbelievably subtle and sophisticated ways to deceive itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only layer that you can always remain confident about is that in whichever way mind is deceiving itself, it is mind at play. You <laughs> know what I mean? That's the only solid yeah. ground I have ever found. I'm only 44. I have maybe some ways to go, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, but the only solid ground I have so far found in this morass is this. Whatever is going on, I, I'm deceiving myself through and through except about one thing. And that is, it is mind doing this. Mind is the essential nature of everything. Whoever thinks otherwise is deceived by mind. Well, mind is absolutely. And, and since the uh, reality of the physical universe is the, the normal uh, operating program that most of us live by, the, the layers of deception must be incredibly deep. Oh, <laughs> I was thinking about it. I'm writing a book about Schopenhauer now, and I think he went very far. Uh, in, in not deceiving himself. And I was thinking about this, exactly this point. Uh, whatever mainstream cultural narrative we have, it has achieved its status as mainstream cultural narrative, not because it's deep and subtle, but because it's easily understandable and bought into. In other words, otherwise it wouldn't be mainstream. So in other words, it's almost by definition a deception. Uh, reality is too slippery. It's too subtle. It's too hard to pin down uh, to 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 be uh, uh, to be amenable to to to, to a mainstream narrative. Um, so so this 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 physicalist idea that what's really going on is matter fundamentally independent and outside of mind. It's almost by definition a deception, a deception that is easy to understand. It's highly intuitive. You know, if I take this book, the book we are talking about, it's a material object, very hard. I cannot imagine it to be something different. It will not change because of my imagination. So of course it's outside my mind. It's out there. Everybody buys into is into this. Hey. 
It's a self-deception narrative that because it's so appealing, so easy to understand, it's achieved the mainstream uh, status. Um, there are layers and layers and layers of self-deception mm-hmm. built between what's really going on and 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 ourselves. And and these layers of self-deception are what we call the the mainstream narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you break through that? <sighs> I don't know. Uh, well, I can only imagine if, if the human race can survive another million years or so, we'll make some progress. It's a, it's a very doubtful thing. <laughs> <laughs> the human species will survive. There will always be the Bushmen in the Kalahari and the Inuits in the Arctic who have the skills to survive whatever happens. The species will not die. But uh, organized human activity, as Noam Chomsky refers to it, you know, our civilization and our culture, I don't know. I hope it does. Uh, try to remain an optimist. But we are so self-deceived in such a dangerous way. You can self-deceive in a naive and harmless way, perhaps. But uh, we are deceiving ourselves in a very, very dangerous way, especially because we have a lot of Promethean power now to screw things up permanently. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Of course, I have a hope, otherwise I wouldn't bother to write books, right? If our civilization is ending, organized human activity is ending, why bother to write books? So there is a part of me who believes that we are going to make it through, but there are so many layers of self-deception. We live so encrusted in a cocoon of conceptual projections and conceptual tilings that have very little to do with reality as it is. It is difficult to see how we'll break through. Well, Bernardo... Castrup, uh, this has been an eye-opener on many levels. Uh, I guess I must share uh, your naive optimism <laughs> <laughs> because I'm, uh, I'm not writing books these days, but I keep producing these conversations and I'm, I'm hopeful that they're going to uh, reach out and have an impact, a positive impact in the world uh, somehow. Uh, but once again, thank you so much for being with me, uh, Bernardo, and I very much look forward to future conversations. I, I hope all my doubts have in some way helped uh, your audience. <laughs> I don't know how, but we hope so. It was a pleasure talking to you again, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.